Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry. I might the train Shut up. You're here. And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And while I'm away on book leave, I wanted to share some of my favorite episodes. And I'm sharing this one with Stephen Wright, the very first podcast episode I recorded. It was just so fun because he's just, he's like a mathematician but for comedy. So you have won an Oscar. You've had two Grammy nominations? Yes. What is it like winning the Employee of the Month Award? It's really fantastic. I, I'm very, I'm happy about it. I didn't know that it even existed. And I'm happy to have something positive happen in any case. I'd rather have that than like being a car accident. I'm so happy that that's where it fit in. Um, so we're here because I wanted to interview you because you were an idol of mine when I was young and you are still an idol, if I can still say idol and friend. Is that possible? Sure. Um, and you're a comedian. That's what your job is, right? Is that what you write on your tax forms? I don't know what I write on. I don't fill them out, actually. Did we just open a bigger pile of forms? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, tax forms, let's not bring that up. Um, Yes, I'm a comedian. But you don't consider it a job? No, I don't consider it a job. I, I barely even consider it being a comedian. That title... I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm a com- I am a comedian, but I don't. I, I'm just like trying to make stuff up. I just like making stuff up. It's like playing. It's like being a little kid and you're just playing. You're in a in a at a table and you're coloring and you're making things up. That's what that's what it's like. What I do. That's what it's. Except I'm doing doing it with words. But I don't see it as a job. I know I have a career. I know I make a living from it, which I'm very, very grateful that I can make a living from my imagination. I mean, it's just so lucky. I really appreciate how lucky I am. But I, but I don't, and I'm lucky that I don't see it like, oh man, now what am I going to do? Now what do I have to make up? Now what do I have to create? I don't see it like that. I just have been able to play for like years and years and years. Because I think that's the the neat part about it is that you've been doing it for so long also. Well, it's really thinking. You know, you can't stop thinking. No one can stop thinking. And the all of comedy is noticing, just noticing the world and then pointing out or twisting elements that you notice every comedian every every artist about anything is based on what noticing and reacting to their surroundings so you can't unless you stop thinking unless you just your brain completely stopped then that wouldn't happen but your brain can't stop yeah but most people's brains do stop thinking in an imaginative way after childhood so what's, I think so yeah what's what's different i think for an artist is that your imagination not only doesn't stop but it keeps growing right right yeah, you're right. 
yeah, there's like an unwritten law that after a certain point you gotta stop making shit up and playing and go yeah. do something considered real. You're right. So then this this doesn't this didn't stop and it expands because you do it so much. It's like a muscle. You're exercising a muscle in your brain of noticing and thinking and creating. And just the idea of knowing you even have muscles. To me, that makes me feel better to know that I might even have muscles. In your brain, you mean? Anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere in the vicinity. Um, so do you remember your first joke that you did on stage? Can you talk about the first time you went on stage? Yeah, I went on in July of 1979. And I... I had gone to see a show at the Comedy Connection about two weeks earlier, and then I figured I would go back to the open mic night. But it was, I mean, I wanted to do it since I was 15 years old. That's a whole other thing we can get into. But so then I wrote a bunch of material, and then I went back. And the first joke was uh, I went into a bookstore, and I I saw a very French-looking girl. She was a bilingual illiterate, and she couldn't read in two different languages. That was the first joke. I never wrote anything before that. I never wrote any jokes. I wrote some weird short stories at a writing class at Emerson College, and I wrote some weird stories, but I never wrote anything to go on the stage. At 15, you sort of, it sort of crystallized the idea of being a comedian, whatever that means. Is that is that how it was? Or Yeah, well, I watched The Tonight Show with my older brother. I watched it, started watching Johnny. Well, I had to watch it because he controlled the television. Watch Johnny because he watched it. And then I started to love it, and I watched it all the time. And that show had a huge impact on my entire life. I loved watching him doing the monologue every night and the, how he would be funny and if it wasn't funny, he would make it funny about how it wasn't funny. So it was always funny. He was just at another level. All these guys are out there now. I like all of them, but he's a step above them. And I think they would all agree. I mean, I know Letterman feels like that. So I watched, I loved him and the comedians he had on, like Richard Pryor, Robert Klein, George Carlin, of course, David Brenner. Guys who I can't even remember their name. Maybe they were on there once and I never saw them ever again. But from watching that show, it got into my head like that would be something that I would like to do, to be one of those guys that came out and just said all this stuff that he made up about the world and then go over and sit down and talk to Johnny. That was my fantasy. And then Woody Allen had a double album before he made movies. That really affected me. The way he wrote jokes, the way he wrote, to me, that was the best. Him and George Carlin. George Carlin, by noticing everyday life and then commenting on it, how he did about everyday stuff that people go through that no one ever really talks about. I had George's album. I memorized Class Clown. I could say some of it to you right now. But I would tune in every week to see when they were going to play the Woody Allen album. When I heard the first time, I was like, oh, my God, when is he going to play this again? And he would play it maybe three times a year. And I would tune in every I was tuning in every week anyway, but hoping it would be another time where he'd play the album. But it never entered my mind. I'm so stupid. I could have gone out and bought the album. <laughs> I didn't realize this until 15 years later. But Why didn't I just go buy the album? <laughs> Thinking back on it, I was studying it. I didn't know it. I was laying there 
in the dark thinking, oh, that's good. And I wasn't like a sign. I mean, I was laughing. I thought it was funny. It wasn't funny. And I was like, well, I like that better than that. That's all. I was like, I like that stuff better than that guy's stuff. I, I just was focused on it more than if you were just listening it to it for the fun of it. I thought I was listening to the, it for the fun of it, but thinking back you know, years later, I realized that I, it was more than just for the fun of it. It's amazing as someone who listened to you obsessively growing up and to Woody Allen growing up, it's so neat to like hear that you were listening to Woody Allen obsessively. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And George Carlin. Woody Allen is the best. He I only think. did one album. Yeah, it was double album, though. I know, but it's still one. It comes out in one. But even if it's under the heading of the word one, it's two. <laughs> you could say that the woman had one set of twins. Oh, but she has two children. No, she has one set of twins. I thought you were going to go for children. breasts, but you didn't go for the easy. You didn't go for the jocular. I didn't think of it. was a moment when I didn't think of it. It's a rare moment. <laughs> and here I go and insert it into <laughs> and make it an issue. In 1982 is when you got discovered by Peter LaSalle at the Ding Ho. Yeah, that was a comedy club in Cambridge. There was two comedy clubs, one in Boston, Comedy Connection, and then the one in Cambridge. And can you just walk me through what that was like to meet Carson? Well, it, it, it was lucky he even got it on because some guy wrote an article about the Ding Ho Comedy Club. It was half Chinese restaurant, half comedy club. And a freelance writer wrote a story about it that ended up in the L.A. Times. I don't know why it ended up in the L.A. Times. Peter LaSalle, the producer of The Tonight Show, saw the article. Then, like, eight months later, he was coming to Boston and New York in the summer of 82. Two of his kids were getting out of high school, so they went on this trip, summer trip to look at schools on the East Coast. And they went to Boston and New York, and he remembered the article. He remembered the club, so he decided he would... While he was in Boston, he would go into this club and watch a show. So usually there'd be like three guys on, but we knew he was coming, so we they changed it to like eight or eight-ish people were on. When you, know, you did five minutes, so more people could go on. And so he saw me there, and then he they contacted me two weeks later, and then they had me go on the Tonight Show. So it was like a fairy tale. So even before I went on the show, that whole story is like. That's incredible. I mean, I don't know what would have happened if his kids weren't going to college. I mean, I got a complete lucky break. Do you remember if the kids liked you or was it him that liked you? I was just curious, you know, if they influenced his decision even at the club. Well, it's funny you bring that up because he told me later that they, him and his wife liked me, but the daughter was like, really like, we got to find this kid. We got to get... You know, she was like 16. We have to find him. And they got a phone book. And it was trying to look me up in the phone book. Because I do often hear that, though. You know, that it happened to be the secretary who read the script and then, you know, really pushed for it. Or the child of the booker for Carson saying he's phenomenal and really driving that. But it, even if she wasn't into it, he was into it enough. So you went on Carson the first time, and I know you told me the story before, but can can you tell it to me again? Because I, I, I love you. Well, you know, I'm 26, and I jumped back to being 14, watching the show every night with my brother. All those years, I didn't stop watching it. All those years, and my fantasy to go on there, and then I'm backstage, and then I'm going to go on there. It was total surrealism. 
just being back there and Johnny Carson came into the dressing room and was talking to me for a few minutes and I couldn't even talk. I was, he could have been saying, we're going to execute you in about two hours. And I was just nodding, yes, yes, okay, that'll be fine with me. I got so nervous that I got numb. First, first appearance on national television and uh, I think you're going to find him a little different. Would you welcome Stephen Wright? One time, right in the middle of a job interview, I took out a book and I started reading. The guy said, what the hell are you doing? I said, let me ask you one question. If you were in a vehicle and you were traveling at the speed of light, and then you turned your lights on, would they do anything? And when you were on The Tonight Show, he calls you over the first time you were on. They said, uh, when you're done, put the microphone back in the stand, look at the audience, look at him, look back at the audience, and then go out of the curtain, leave the stage. So I was going through what they told me. When I looked over at him, he was waving for me to go over to him. And the guys on the floor with the headphones in front of the cameras, they were waving me to go. And I took a step and, like, stopped, and I was confused because it wasn't what they said was probably going to happen. So I went down, and I sat down, and I couldn't talk. I was so afraid. I couldn't. I was speechless. If you see the tape, I'm yes. stumbling, and it was incredible. I mean, again, watching the show since I was 14, I knew that very rarely someone sat down on their first time. Even to this day, that night, going on there, August 6th, 1982 was the biggest thing in my career my favorite thing in my career my favorite thing one of the favorite things in my whole life but my favorite thing in my whole career that happened is that one night no matter what everything that happened after that's still more to me in Boston. I worked at uh, the Comedy Connection and Constant Comedy, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. And that's where uh, Peter O'Sally saw me, who that's right, brought sorry. me here. And uh, he saw me. He didn't say anything, but three weeks later, the phone rang, and he said, how'd you like to do the Tonight Show? And I said, uh, I think you have the wrong number. <laughs> because it was my fantasy it was my dream yeah. to come out there and do that on his show and then and then it happened eight years later you know when you're that age when you're 14 the world is just different in your mind so you had to have this fantasy in your head this dream watching the show watching Don Rickles watching Burt Reynolds they were hilarious watching these people talking to Johnny the comedian and then really going on it was just, it was magical. It was like a Norman Rockwell, Salvador Dali, weird. <laughs> painters stuck on an elevator, and they have paints with them, and they do the walls until they're saved 11 hours later. And then people go in and try to figure out who, which part was Dali. Well, I think it's very clear to know yes, which one was, was Dali and which one was Dali. <laughs> but Dali could, like, maybe go adjust Norman Rockwell's stuff, and then Norman Rockwell could go over and paint on Dolly's stuff so it would be this weird mixture. I feel like Dolly would be the one to actually get you out of the stuck elevator because he would do something so weird that it would work. <laughs> but Rockwell would be the only one who could like keep that elevator functional. Last summer I went fishing with Salvador Dolly. He was using a dotted line. <laughs> he caught every other fish. <laughs> So what happens? Like you, you go up because it's such a different era now. Like then you go on this one show, 
and your career changes. Yeah, then there was only three channels. I guess HBO had just started. But there was this show was the show. Like there there's no show now where you could just go on, I don't think, and then in five minutes your whole career or your life changed. And so what what, what what specifically happens? Like people always say it was a it was a game changer, it was a life changer, but what does that mean? Well, because I went on the Tonight Show, then I went on Letterman, then I went on Saturday Night Live doing stand up and then did that over and over. Went and on, you went on Carson again. Oh yeah, I went on Friday the first time Friday, and then I went on the next Thursday. That's absurd, right? Has that ever happened before or since? I, I don't know. I think it happened before. I was lucky. They said, do you want to go on next Thursday? And I was confused. I thought they was, he was saying something about the one I just did, because I thought I heard him wrong, because he was saying, going on the Tonight Show, and I thought we were talking about the one that happened Friday. This was like on a Monday. No, what do you mean? Oh, this Thursday. This Thursday? Again? Go on again? Yes. But these things are happening so fast. Yes, I started playing comedy clubs around the United States after I went on The Tonight Show. Before that, I was in Boston, Cambridge, go out to New Haven, Connecticut, do it one night there. I was going and doing something, coming back, sleeping in my, same, in my bed, in my apartment. Mm -hmm. Plus, I was making like $20 a set about... So I could, after about a year, I could pay my rent with, without working in the daytime. I mean, if my rent was $175, so... Now you're showing off. Not, not, <laughs> not when I could make that. After I went on The Tonight Show, then comedy clubs wanted me, and I started doing that around the country after the show. Everything changed after that show. And then you had your first HBO special? Yeah, in 1985 or six. <laughs> and then how did you sort of segue into doing uh, film and acting in films uh, and television? Because you did Mad About You. Well, when I, after the couple of years. Reservoir Dogs. A couple of years on The Tonight Show, they were, they, the director, Susan Seidelman, who was directing Desperately Seeking Susan. I love that, that movie. The casting director or something brought her and me to her attention, and, and she liked me, so she put me in there. When I was watching The Tonight Show when I was 15, my goal was to go on The Tonight. That was my main thing, but I also wanted to someday be in a movie, just someday be in any movie. So when I was being, filming that movie, in my head, I wasn't walking around the set saying this, but in my head it was like, oh my God, I've gone on The Tonight Show, and now I'm in a movie. I can't believe my both of my things. I was still doing the same thing. It was just that I was on different stages. I mean, actual physically different stages rather than like Scampi's. I'm in a nice club somewhere. And then after the clubs, after the HBO and I Have a Pony thing, then I was playing theaters. But I was still just me writing, trying, testing, performing. And I'm just, for the, the three people out there who don't know, I Have a Pony was your first breakout comedy album in 1985 and you were on HBO doing your special. Um, but I just wanted to put that yes, out there because yeah. they can still buy it on stephenwright.com and they can also buy it. I still have a pony. Do you still have a pony? Did you ever have a pony? Yeah, I had a pony when we grew up. I grew up in Burlington, Massachusetts and we had a horse. We had a couple of horses and a pony and we had a goat. We had, it wasn't a, it was suburbia, but rural. It wasn't completely normal suburbia. 
Do you ever feel like the goat? Do you feel bad towards the goat or the horses that they never made it into one of the titles? Like the pony got it twice. No, I don't. I the the reason it's called I Have a Pony is because I had a joke. Oh, the apartment building I lived in allowed pets, and I said I had a pony. <laughs> I have a Shetland pony named Mickey, and last summer he was involved in a bizarre electrolysis accident. <laughs> removed except for the tail. <laughs> now I rent them out to a Hare Krishna family picnic. That was on that album and and it when I was doing comedy about three or four years, I realized that some joke that I wrote two three years ago I was still doing because it worked. And I and I, I was just tuning in now, wait a minute, I might be saying these things for a long time. And then with my friends, my close friends, I said, imagine if I was like in a mental, I don't know, when I was in a weird accident and I was insane, I was in a mental hospital. And your and, friends are like, we don't actually have to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, what if that happened? And then all I could say is, I have a pony. I'm just, all I can say is, I have a pony. I'm in an insane asylum. And all I can say is that one sentence, because I've been saying it for three years. So then when I got the opportunity to make an album, I called it I Have a Pony because of the inside joke. And then you got to do neat things like Larry Sanders and Reservoir Dogs and, you know, play, playing K-Billy. But in terms of like natural born killers and Mad About You and Babe, were those, did you see those as job jobs? So yeah, I'm a writer performer. I, that's what a comedian is. So to do these other things was a way to perform without doing the writing. So it was another experience. It was just an interesting, okay, here I am doing these little parts in these movies, and somebody wrote it, and it was just fun, good, great thing to do, just another experience. When did you start doing music on stage also? Because and, and, I know you do some music that's not necessarily comedic, and then you do um, really funny bits on stage with... Your guitar. Oh, right from the, right in the first six months, I brought the guitar on stage. I had just learned how to started to learn how to play the guitar in 1977. I knew a couple of chords, and then I, when I was doing comedy about six months, I just I don't know. I just thought like I was just fooling around with the guitar, and then I just thought of these jokes that could be laid on top of the melody and then I, so that's how that happened. I'm always so amazed with your comedy because you have to you have so many one-liners right after another. I'm just amazed that you memorize you're able to like memorize all of these because there are all these little stories and little anecdotes and tangents but they don't seem necessarily related. Was that something you were able to do from the beginning? Uh, yeah, it was because, it, well, I learned right in the, from going on, right in the beginning that one of the things you needed to do was to know exactly how to say the joke. And you couldn't be up there stumbling. I realized that any stumbling at all would make the joke not work, even if it was a little bit of a stumble. So it was important to be able to say the joke the exact right way and to know you know, say the next one quickly after that, quickly, then the next one quickly. Any gaps or mistakes was going to make the reaction not as good. 
the jokes are disjointed, but in my head they might be connected time-wise. Like when I wrote them, they were some of them would be written all in a, one section of time. So in my head they were grouped by the time they were made, not by what they were saying. Do you ever have to say to yourself, "Gosh, how am I? How much am I going to make this year? How many gigs do I need to do to make this much?" Or well, I there is that side of it. Like there's the well, you know, I have to survive. I have to. Not, I have to make a living. So I know that whole side of it. But when I'm actually doing the show, it's still the the art of it. Like when I started out in Boston, it, the show is still not a business. The show is a business thing because I'm doing the show and performing and getting paid. But being on the stage is the same. That's the, it's never changed. It's like being in a little art school. And I think that's also what's the difference between being lucky enough to have a passion to begin with and then being able to do that passion as a job that, yeah, you still get to enjoy it at the end of the day, but you do have this aspect of having to figure out how to make a living from it. Do you say, I'm going to do this many gigs this year or... So I do the amount of shows that I just, I'm lucky now, I do the amount that I feel like doing. So that that's what I do. I did want to talk to you about the question of mortality and, and artists, though, because as someone who doesn't seem to sort of cling to God and religion, and yet, like, there's something neat about having to write things down and have movies that you've made and have comedy that you've done. It seems like this way of, like, I don't know, sustaining your existence. Is that true for you or no? First of all, I am religious. I was raised Catholic, and I have... I, my, my, my mind is in two different sections. I can believe the Catholic thing, God and all that. One section of my brain believes that, and another section of my brain is a scientist and doesn't believe it at all, and nobody knows really why we're here. And after the, before the Big Bang, okay, the Big Bang, but that's, what is, so what the Big Bang? What was before that? Now, our brains, so anyway, I have both things in my head. I mean, we can't know, we'll never know what the story is because if you showed a seven-year-old a, a camera and he takes click the thing and then he sees that the picture is in the camera he sees that when you click it the picture's in there but he doesn't know about the shutter speed and the digital or if it was film he doesn't know anything about that but he knows that that's the picture and that's how our brains are and we're at the level of a seven-year-old with a camera as far as how is the universe got here when the seven-year-old is 13 you can explain to him how the camera works then he'll know but our brains from say each from seven to thirteen say seven to thirteen is what five years is that five or six from seven to, to six years later he can know how the camera works we if each one of those years was worth eighty million years eight times six four hundred and eighty million years down the line i don't know if our brains are going to be that different to know how the camera worked meaning how the universe got here I don't even, so, but I believe in the religion, and I have the scientist way of looking at it. But by the time but, this analogy is over, <laughs> cameras will... You have to break for lunch during <laughs> no. the analogy. No, I was going to say, cameras will be... Hamburger. I was going to say, the camera, cameras will be obsolete. They'll no longer be a camera for the seven-year-old. By the time <laughs> the analogy is to the end, <laughs> yes. there's nothing left. There's tumbleweeds. There's no cities. <laughs> 
just hope the technology will have advanced so far the time the story is over. But I mean, that I a kid will be like, "What's a camera?" I think, I don't <laughs> What's do, that relic? Do the comedy to validate my. I, it's you know everyone's alive. They just do things. You got You don't. You know. You have to do things. There isn't a sense of I'd like to leave something um, larger no, than myself or no, leave something behind. No, 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 nothing. No, I'm just trying to make more stuff up and see what works and what doesn't. That's all. I know that I'm really grateful on so many levels that you do that. You've changed my my life and I know so many other people where that is, is true and I'm glad that you continue to change those people's lives. You stopped changing mine a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Totally. Somewhere I'm saying thank you. <laughs> totally. like in there. You know when they give you some weirdly backhand and you're like, what? What just happened? Who are the comedians who, who are working today that you really enjoy? Well, I, uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, Louis C.K., I think, is unbelievable. You were recently on his show. Yeah, I was on his show about two weeks ago, and he, his mind just is incredible to me, how he writes, directs, and edits the show. It's just that that show on FX is amazing. But And his stand-up, I've seen him do stand-up, which is incredible. I did was with him in Chicago. He had, like, three guest comedians with him at this comedy festival, and it was... Jake Johansson and Richard Lewis and myself, and but Louie was the main uh, performer, and he, he's unbelievable. He, his mind just astounds me. I mean, him and Woody Allen are the only people doing that. Uh, I guess Larry David, too. He's another genius. These people are geniuses. Jim Jeffries, you know. Mm -hmm. The English comedian, yeah. yeah he, I think he's Australian. I apologize. I'm just, I'm just Eurocentric. He... <laughs> He's amazing. I saw him in Caroline's about four months ago. He was astoundingly creative and excellent. It was just an amazing comedian. Uh, Bill Burr. Yes. Bill Burr. He's, he's, he was amazing. I saw him in Caroline's too. Just, in, in, just, you know, I do this so I know when I see someone that's like at the top of their game, like these two guys were like pitchers, like in baseball pitchers in the, in the prime of their careers, just fastball, 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 just amazing, tight imaginations, tight sets and creative imaginations. And Joe DeRosa was on, I saw him in there too, and he, he was amazing too. I like when you make the analogy with pitchers, because I was like, God, if pitchers really played that well, baseball would be so much more fun and fast to watch. Well, you know, I have analogy-itis, <laughs> which is like having... Which is, I was waiting for the rest of either the no, joke or the no, it was presenting the idea. <laughs> I thought the idea was enough that it didn't need to really actually happen. Um, I am so grateful to have been able to meet with you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was fun. It was fun. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Nora Lynn. Thank you to Rob Schulte. Thank you to ACAST. Thanks to all of you for listening. And to find out more about Employee of the Month, you can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. We have weekly podcast, which means it comes out weekly, which you can subscribe to. We also have uh, live shows coming up in the fall. And you can also follow me at Katie Lazarus, C-A-T-I-E, Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. And wherever you go, I hope that you are doing something creative, meaningful, 
fun, and that you are happy and healthy. That's a lot for a host to say in one sentence and mean all of it, but I do. I'm Katie Lazarus. I'll talk to you next week.